0: Welcome to Ipsa Dixit. I'm your student co host, S.J. Morrison. Today, I will be speaking to Professor Casey Bishop, Clinical Associate Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina School of Law, on her paper, Framing Failure in the Legal Classroom Techniques for Encouraging Growth and Resilience. This paper is available on SSRN and has been published in the Arkansas Law Review. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this paper. So I'm going to launch right in. Tell me, Professor, what is failure?
1: Well, I'm, I'm guessing that many people have different definitions of it. I define failure as what feels like a failure um, to the person experiencing it. So I think sometimes the failures that I sort of talk about in my paper may be considered setbacks or mistakes to some people and in fact in doing this work I encountered many people who said why don't you just use the word setback or mistake I don't want to be the one who's defining failure for someone if it feels like a failure then I want it to be a failure so I try to honor the feeling that Failure evokes. I do think that there's a spectrum of failure that some may be bigger and may be more blameworthy, but many are praiseworthy even um, in the effort of learning, and many can be overcome, and that the word failure often looms large. So I like to minimize its impact or its uh, power that it has over us by calling even what might be small failures, calling them failures nonetheless. Um, so I guess something that we get wrong or something that we feel like we got wrong, that's something that may not feel great in the moment, um, but that it's something that we can learn from.
0: So on that note, uh, I'm sure you're aware that many lawyers and law students are perfectionists. And this is pretty natural because the risks in the profession can be extremely high. For instance, we all hear about that case where millions of dollars are lost over the misplacement or absence of a comma. Uh, And since the stakes are so high, what's wrong with perfectionism in the legal field?
1: Well, I completely agree that there are upsides to perfectionism. Um, I think they help achieve high standards, help us do our best, help us strive to do our best by checking our work, being detail-oriented, thinking through all sides of an issue to shore up any weaknesses in an argument. That's particularly important in law, obviously. So I think perfectionism can make us highly effective and high achievers um, and help our client representation, help us affect policy, help us create strong judicial decisions and law precedent, etc. So I think there are many, many upsides to perfectionism. I think that is a trait that many law students and lawyers share. There are downsides too. On the extreme, certainly there's clinical or sort of dysfunctional perfectionism. That's more of a mental health disorder that I'm not really trying to touch on in this paper. Um, But I think even short of that, that sometimes being perfectionist can make us less resilient In the face of negative criticism or negative feedback, um, you know, we get so used to sort of arguing that we're right in our adversarial system. We're sort of setting ourselves up to create an argument that is right and argue why it's right uh, that then we then become sort of less able sometimes, though, to hear or see why that may be wrong. I think also striving for perfection can lead to sort of paralysis. So it's it can it can make us as we seek to have everything be perfect. Sometimes that can mean that we actually procrastinate doing anything um, because we don't want to make a mistake, and so we wait and wait and wait, or don't start on something because we're afraid that by doing it, that we're not going to do it perfectly. And then by default, then we actually end up making it not perfect because we've procrastinated so long. So I call that the sort of perfection to paralysis cycle. And then I think the final point I would say is that I think perfectionism perfectionism can have the very significant downside of leading to high stress. If we're always striving to be perfect and high achieve and Uh, can't rest until something is perfect, that that could lead to burnout. We can fool ourselves that sort of working longer hours or doing more work on something is leading to perfection. Um, And I would say that that's working longer maybe, but not smarter. And with the example of the misplacement of the comma, I don't know that that came from perfectionism or, you know, I mean, I I, I could see where that could actually come from, be a downside of perfectionism in the sense of not being open to having something reviewed or being able to, being open to, there might be a mistake in there. And so scrutinizing it even more for perhaps, or, um, not taking breaks, maybe working too hard that there was not taking the break and taking the space and having the fresh eyes to come back to it. So actually there might be the benefit of sort of not working um, or having an understanding of perfectionism as a downside to when the stakes are so high.
0: And in your paper, you, you also kind of talk about increasing the dialogue around discussing one's own failures. What's the benefit of discussing one's own failures? Are you concerned that if we talk to each other about our failures, it might become normalized in the dialogue among lawyers, meaning it may set the precedent
1: that it's okay to fail? Yeah, I, I think it is okay to fail. I, we do fail. Ah. Um, we're all human, (laughs) right? So, I mean, we, we do make mistakes. We do fail. Um, So not talking about it doesn't change, change that. Right. So I think the talking about it actually allows the failure to then be the starting point. And some of the, I reference in paper, some of the studies that came out more of the medical field, but, Where there was a willingness to talk about, and actually business in um, commercial enterprises as well, where there's a willingness to talk about the failures, they actually found that there, not that there were less failures, that there were the same amount of failures, but there was more corrective um, action taken where people were able to discuss it openly. So I think it could go, I think it would be great to normalize discussing failure and to normalize failure in itself. Um, And that discussing failures could go a long way to demystifying it and making it sort of central as a point of learning rather than an impediment to our growth or excellence.
0: And on that note, in your paper, you write turning toward failure and trying to learn from it is no easy task. It requires ceasing to blame in the face of failure. Can you expand a little bit more on what you mean by turning toward failure and why do we blame and who do we blame?
1: Yeah, I think um, in part, I ta- wanted to talk about turning toward failure because I think there is the tendency to sort of ignore it, sweep it under the rug, um, not not sort of pay attention to it. And that then allows it to sometimes fester or um, we don't, you know, we don't maximize our learning from it. We don't actually, we sort of stagnate rather than continue to improve. Um, so turning toward failure, I want to acknowledge it and give it its due. Take, have people take responsibility for a mistake, for what went wrong and then study what happened and take then steps to be able to fix it. I think the blame part of it too often in the face of failure, because it's uncomfortable because we feel crummy or because we, it's not what we wanted to happen. It becomes too easy to sort of blame others or sort of external events in the face of failure. I mean, sometimes people even blame the weather, right? Well, this wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been raining. Um, so it's that's sort of an easy route to take. I think the other side sometimes some people will internalize that blame and sort of have this negative spiraling internal speak, um, self blaming and shaming about even small failures that could probably be easily fixed. Um, so that's I think that blame part of it um, is when, when failure has power over us and that we don't, then we can't learn from it or move on or improve. So I think that if we can acknowledge the crummy feelings, if we can look toward failure, feel the sting of it. I'm not saying to ignore the sting of it. I think that's an important part of understanding it, but also understanding that that's a that can be a temporary thing, um, and then try to see it as a learning opportunity. So turning toward the failure to see it, what can we learn from it, and how can we really make things better? So what went wrong? What did I have? A control, what did I have control over? What could I have done differently, or what could I do differently in the future? How could I rectify the situation now, and what will I do next time? Um, interestingly, I think that. By studying failure and pushing into it a little bit, turning toward it, sitting with it, um, the discomfort, for instance, and then asking ourselves those questions and sort of analyzing the failure, we can actually move to a point not just of growth and learning, but we can more quickly sort of shed that negative feeling and that space. And I think the blame, blaming part of it keeps us in that sort of negative space um, that ah, we can't. Ah. It doesn't allow us to push past it.
0: Okay. Okay. Then, can um, you, can
1: tell, you
0: me can tell me the, the
1: difference, difference between, between a fixed
0: mindset, mindset and a growth mindset?
1: Sure. Yeah. In mindset theory, um, STEM is. I mean, that's Carol Dweck's work. Dr. Carol Dweck, who's a professor of psychology at Stanford University, um, and she, she in studying grade schoolers. Um, sort of identify these two different mindsets, the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. And in essence, we all occupy, or we all can and do occupy each of those at different times. Um, So let me give some examples or give some more information. Fixed mindset is where we sort of see intelligence as static. Despite efforts, despite what we might do, um, you can't really change your intelligence or your ability. So for instance, you might be, you might say you are smart or you are not smart, or um, you are a musician or you're not a musician. Your Since your effort doesn't matter, if something is hard, then it must not be, it must not be something for you. So it's easy to sort of relegate it to the side and say, oh, that's, that's just not for me and give up on it. Um, and not receive any, for, any sort of feedback or be willing to hear any feedback, any criticism about what you might do differently. Because you've already, in your mind, compartmentalized it as something that's not for you. Right. You're already,
0: this is who you are, so there's no changing it. So why even bother with any type of feedback? Exactly.
1: Okay. The growth mindset is where intelligence is malleable. And it can grow incrementally. Um, so then, on the whereas effort was sort of fruitless for a fixed mindset, effort becomes the key to mastery with a growth mindset. Um, that there's a recognition that persisting in the face of challenge will, and seeking feedback and feel, figuring out ways to improve, that you will actually hit higher levels. Whereas when occupying the fixed mindset, we might plateau early. So a good example in the law school context is, um, you know, contracts, for instance, a 1L who's taking contracts law and doesn't understand contracts, feels like it's above his head, for instance, may say, I'm not a contracts person. I just don't understand contracts. They're not for me. I like don't get it. Um, I'm never going to do contracts. Whereas I'm gonna be somebody, very,
0: a I, I hear that. A lot. I'm Go be very, I, I hear that. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, you you were mentioning you have this student that will say, "This is not my field. I'm never going to do this. I can't do this." I'm as a student, that is a dialogue that I hear uh, rather often. Um, if I'm being honest.
1: Yeah, I do too, and I think that's where we can catch ourselves in that mindset because we can all occupy a fixed mindset at different times. Um, so, even knowing about mindset theory, we can help to shift it. I mean, the and a and a good example with that same student would be to add the word "yet" to the framing, even right. So, I am not understanding contracts yet. Um. Or I really don't know what an offer is, but I'm going to study it. But I have the capability of understanding what an offer is. So I'm going to spend some time working on it because I just haven't figured it out yet. Um, and I think that then that shift to a growth mindset Contracts may still, I mean, somebody may still not ever feel like this is his favorite aspect of law. Does anyone? But he hasn't given up on himself then yet either, right? Uh, so if we, if we step
0: back and we look at the traditional law school approach to teaching, you know, the, the Socratic method, the the one exam model, do you feel that the traditional law school approach fosters a fixed or a growth mindset
1: one way or the other? Unfortunately, I think all too often, uh, as an, a broad institution, not one institution in particular, but just as a broad institution, I think uh, that law school often fosters a fixed mindset. Um, and there's been some studies that actually show this. um I think a large part of that is due to the institutional focus on outcomes. People come into law school wanting to help people, wanting to serve, wanting to learn more. It's, you know, they have achieved a lot academically in the past, but they're entering, deliberately entering a professional school, a graduate program, um, and wanting then to learn more and then be able to Go out and problem solve for others and help others. Um, I think then, and then again, this is documented, I cite to some studies in the paper, um, that over the course of that 1L year, within the first few months, even, whether it's sent explicitly or implicitly, students often receive the message that the outcomes are what matter most. The grades, their class rank, and then ultimately that they need to find a job in not just just any law office or law firm, but a top-ranked law firm, Um, that that becomes the sort of message that that is success in law school and as a lawyer. And I I think that there's multiple ways to do law school and multiple ways to be a lawyer effectively and successfully. Um, But I think the message often, at first at least, gets sort of received as that's what success is. Um, And that the grades, the rank, the job placement end up being more seen as being more important than the learning. I think these then having these extrinsic measures... Um, become the prevailing measures of success and thus the identity, which those outcome being extrinsically focused in that way leads, you know, is sort of indicative, leads to, or is indicative of a fixed mindset. Um, And there's this shift then from the intrinsic motivation to these extrinsic motivations um, that, and then coupled with our loss, as you mentioned, that, we have one exam for most of the courses, there's one exam without any formative assessment or feedback prior to that exam. And that the only feedback then is that grade coming out of that one, three hour exam on one particular day, when you're measured against everyone else taking the exam on that particular day, um, that it contributes to people thinking that they are or are not good at this um, and that they're ultimately that their grades are more important than what they might have learned or how effective they will ultimately be as an attorney. Now, stepping away
0: from the traditional law school model uh, in your paper, and I just, I got so excited when I read this because you proposed a number of ways uh, that we can shift the traditional legal pedagogy. And uh, one of the ways was that you suggested that professors recontextualize failure and explain why it is expected to help foster a growth mindset. How specifically would you recommend professors address that in a classroom?
1: Yeah, thank, thank you. I, you know, I'm part of what, um, I wanted to do in this paper because I see some of these things as so easy to do that ultimately could make a big difference to at least some students, if not many or all students, um, that that's what I was trying to do in the paper was really identify some tangible techniques that people could employ. So I think that people without having to do, without having to overhaul their curriculum, think people could do some things fairly easily and specifically to recontextualize failure for maximum learning. Um, specifically, I think that people can acknowledge failure right off the bat, acknowledge that we need to make mistakes and push through those mistakes and learn from those mistakes in order to best learn. Um, that that is inherent in any sort of education, really, and that that is not, um, that that is deliberately part of the law school curriculum, and that people, professors can share that they have high expectations, and that they expect students to make mistakes. And I think that that, even acknowledging that up front and sort of pulling the curtain back a little bit in terms of our pedagogical approaches and letting people know that the Socratic method, in its traditional uh, methodology, um, let is designed so that students do make mistakes and sort of have to work through that as a way to learn how to think like a lawyer. Um, okay, learn how to analyze problems and sort of by looking at different sides and understanding how to make an argument and back, you know, back up their claims with reasons by taking in multiple perspectives or pushing on the facts. What if the facts change? Where are the bounds of the law? You know, how does that application change, et cetera? Um, That's not a huge ask. That's, you know, people are already doing that, employing the Socratic method or cold calling, for instance, in their classrooms – but just letting students know the sort of why behind what the professors are doing I think goes a long way to helping engage the students in that process and understand that the to not to have less of a fear of making the mistakes I think there's also part of that is also contextualizing the fact the failure explaining why or how struggling helps them learn so getting into some of the cognitive science I guess in that sense Uh, I think, you know, what's interesting and what's so many actually miraculous, I think, about Carol Dweck's mindset theory is that even being exposed to the idea that we have different mindsets and that we have control over that, that we can learn to recognize when we are occupying a fixed mindset and shift, try to shift it into a growth mindset, even being aware of that allows people to start engaging in that recognition and shifting of mindset. So I think professors could do a little bit on mindset theory in their classrooms and have that go a long way and have if that were reinforced across the curriculum. That would really send the message that the you know mistakes are not what's important. It's the learning from that. And we're really emphasizing the learning over the outcomes in that sense. Um, Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, I think the finally, like, you know, another easy thing I think people can do is sort of share failure. Some professors I understand may not want to share their own failure, but even talking about the mistakes that they made in law school or their own processes throughout law school or, Things that they did and they learned from mistakes that they made and learned from during their practice, it helps to then send the message that this is a process. It is progress that you're working toward, not necessarily perfection, and that we're all in this um, together.
0: So I, I'm not pushing Duquesne, um, but I'm going to tell you, the professors at Duquesne are just positively adorable. But <laughs> they really are. Like, I could just tell you stories about all of them. They're wonderful. Uh, but I saw this one piece in your paper, and it was a light bulb for me because you were really able to identify an absence and how that is something that would not traditionally be seen as... I don't want to use the term bullying, Mm -hmm. but what I'm driving at is you talked about silent feedback in the classroom and how this can result in ability labeling.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not sure if I heard the last part. Um, Sorry, I can
0: repeat. I'm having a little bit of an issue with um, the recording on my end. Um, I was asking you about silent feedback in the classroom in terms of the Socratic method and how this can result in ability labeling for the students.
1: Yeah. um, So let me back up a little bit. Ability labeling also comes out of Dr. Dweck's work on mindset. Um, And essentially, you know, in a nutshell, ability labeling is sort of the idea of saying about a student, he's smart um, or she's a good writer, right? That sort of giving, putting a label on someone as though that person's intellect and intelligence was static is also a product of the fixed mindset, right? So that um, teachers, professors, all of us, I mean, all of us can have the fixed mindset about other people. And we're sort of making that judgment, about people and then sort of lumping people into these boxes. So what's the flip side, right? If somebody, if he's smart, then somebody else is not smart, and we've sort of created these compartments in our mind that we are seeing them as fixed, fixed compartments. Um, and then we do not see somebody as having the potential for the growth, and that's true for the person that we're labeling as being smart for instance that we may not then recognize when that person is struggling or where there might be a little bit more with a little more push that that person could be even better or more effective um but then there's also of course not we're sort of if we're labeling people in that regard then we may be sort of implicitly at least labeling or unconsciously labeling other students um that we do not see as smart or do not see as a good writer. And so we may just then be sort of foreclosing them being able to improve by not recognizing their potential and setting up this dichotomy in the class or with our students. When you're talking about it happening silently, I think silent silently with silence in the classroom. Um, I think when somebody, and I know I struggle with this, when somebody has an answer in the classroom, you've posed a question, somebody has an answer that's not quite what you're looking for, or maybe completely off base from what you're looking for in terms of an answer, it's difficult to not want to just move on from that person. Um, it's hard, it's difficult to sort of engage. In that way, sometimes to push into and try to help that student reach the right answer or um, know what questions to ask to get at it. You know, when you're giving feedback to someone, you're having to make a diagnosis and that on the spot, making that diagnosis about what somebody is not doing when that answer or missing or not understanding. It can be really hard on the fly. Um, Plus, you know, it makes it can make people uncomfortable Um, too when somebody gets the answer wrong and you want that person to get the answer right. So I think then all too often it can be easy to sort of move on to the next person quickly um, and sort of dismiss the idea or ignore it and what I have heard from students and what I have witnessed is that 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 process whether, I don't believe it's intended, but that sort of ignoring or moving on that silence in the face of an answer that's not correct can send the message to that student that that student is not smart or that the professor does not see that student as smart. And so there is that implicit ability labeling with the silence. Um, you know, it, it, this is, this may be a tougher intervention or a technique than just framing failure or sort of acknowledging it from the outset, for instance. Um, But I think to try to continue to work with a student to explore the gaps in that student's understanding by saying things like, let's work through this. Okay, I, I hear you saying this, what else did the court rely on? Or what What do you think is the primary takeaway and sort of staying with that student to allow that student a little bit more opportunity to provide an answer that would be um, a stronger answer or improve upon the first answer? I mean, this also goes to sort of the thinking fast, thinking slow, right? We sort of sometimes... Students need more time to process information. And so somebody may not have sort of the best answer or the correct answer. I kind of have air quotes around correct in that sense. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Right off the bat, but with time might. And so allowing that student a little bit more time or to push into it may help that student not come away with the feeling that they're not able to do this work. Um, and that's why I like the word yet, too, even if we don't use it. Um, I think if we have it in our mind, in our own minds as teachers, professors, that we can think about our students as not yet being able to do something allows us to account for where the student is what the student is able to do, what the student still needs to do, and that that student has the capability to do it.
0: it. <laughs> uh, uh, in addition to yet, you in also that, talk about and. Uh, you talked about the use of the word and in providing written feedback to explain to a student that she, what she did well and something in her writing that requires improvement or work. However, there is no sugarcoating that the legal profession is tough. Do you feel that providing positive feedback is unrealistic and might potentially make our students soft?
1: I really love this question, um, and I thank you for it. Um, so let me let me push against that for um, for a moment. I don't see using the word and as sugarcoating, uh, nor do I see anything that I'm recommending as making our students soft, but let me confront that a little bit more. I think, um, I think they're, you know, sort of underlying this question is the premise that lawyers need to be hard to be effective or tough to be effective um, and this is outside of the realm of the paper, but very much linked to my own pedagogy. Anyway, is that I think that there is considerable room for empathy in law and in being an effective lawyer. Um, so I would I guess I would start sort of with the that I disagree with that sort of underlying premise, but actually, you know, what the reason I use and and like and. Um, because it is precisely for the word and that I can be both rigorous and supportive in my teaching. So the techniques that I recommend are aimed at being both rigorous and supportive, and they're certainly not aimed at trying to make anyone less sort of quote unquote tough or effective as a lawyer. In fact, I want them to be more so. And it's this the word and uh, that allows that duality to be possible, to be both rigorous and supportive. Um, So that's why I like it in feedback too, because it incorporates, as you said, what the student has done well, as well as what needs to still be done to improve the answer. Um, And I like it because if we only focus on what we need to improve, then we lose sight of what we've already done well. And sometimes joining that feedback of um, you did the, you know, the. You've identified the facts of the case and helpfully provided a fact statement, but uh, the legal analysis of those facts is fairly conclusory. If we join that with what the area of improvement is, with the but, I think it's easy to sort of discount what came before. And for people to focus then on only on what needs to be improved as opposed to what was done effectively and sort of lose sight of that. Um, and it's important for us to know what has gone well or for a student to know what she did well, what she did effectively, as well as what she needs to improve on so that she can replicate what she did well in again in the future. I would hate As, for somebody to come back and, you know, not do what they did well in the first place because they sort of discounted that um, in a revision, for instance. That's
0: brilliant. Uh, I just, I second everything you just said. I love that because it's just when you are faced with a series of no's, it's very difficult to understand what, you should be doing. Um, And I just think that's absolutely brilliant, beautiful answer. And uh, I only have one last question. Um, This was really exciting because this was the part of the paper that spoke to me as a student. uh, And you talked about having students engage in pre-mortem and post-mortem failures. Can you explain what that is and why that could be beneficial?
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, this this is something that in doing the work on this paper, I mean a lot of things in doing this work on the papers has um, affected my own life and teaching, of course. But um, you know, so we we know the term postmortem more commonly. Um, we've talked about it a little bit already, just in this time today. Uh, the studying of what went wrong. Failure that has already occurred, right? So, really digging in and looking at um, what happened. I, I think it is important to focus on what happened and not who, and that gets us away from the blame as well. But what happened, what went wrong, and then being able to really study that to that help. That's what helps us learn then for going future, going forward. So, can we make a diagnosis as to what happened. Was it inadequate planning, a complexity of the material, um, what about what went wrong, what was in the person's control or not in the person's control, and then taking it from there. So what do we need to do to rectify the situation? And then what steps would we take in the future to be different? And so really sitting with it and studying it, analyzing it, helps us move past it and learn from it and not replicate that part of it in the future, right? Not replicate the same failure. If we ignore it, we might be more likely to do it again, um, make the same mistake, but by engaging with it and studying it. One, as we sort of talked about earlier, I think you can shed the negative feelings more quickly, but two, then more, you know, you also are able to then move past it and learn from it and not replicate those things in the future. The pre-mortem, though, sort of turns this on its head, and you don't need the failure to have already happened to be able to study the failure um, that could happen in that sense. So the pre-mortem is studying, I guess, you know, the what could die or how it could die <laughs> type thing <laughs> how it could fail. Um, And I think this is exciting for lawyers like this is what we want to be doing right is engaging in thinking through all the ways that something could go wrong in a client representation in a contract um you know if we had a pre-mortem about a contract and we listed out punctuation could go wrong then we might not ever have a comma causing millions of dollars (laughs) and lost our client um so this, the premortem is the idea of envisioning that the endeav- endeavor or project has already failed, brainstorming all the causes for that failure, and then identifying the ones that you can or cannot con- the ones you can control versus the ones you cannot con- control, because the ones you can control, you can actually take steps to perhaps mitigate the potential of that failure occurring and be prepared for it if it does, for instance. Um, So, you know, this is one that I think could be employed in all sorts of realms and would be necessary for uh, being a lawyer, regardless of anyone's feelings of failure. Is that sort of thinking about how we can best represent our clients, how we can best come up with a strategy for certain things, taking into consideration all the things that could go wrong and then working to prevent those. Fantastic. Uh,
0: Professor, again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day on a Sunday morning to come be on Ipsodixit. I had a lot of fun with this podcast.
1: I did too. Thank you so much. I'm, I really enjoyed this. <music>
2: to be a singer in a rock and roll band, he would write the songs and I'd tremble at his hand, but oh, lie, he lost poetic ethic and his songs were pathetic, he's a failing now, and he used to be the life and soul of everyone around. You'd never catch him looking up And never see him down But oh, la-la He couldn't raise a smile, no Not for a while And he's a fading now Don't cry, child so much more to live for Don't cry, child I've got something I would die for And if it comes to the rain Just be glad you'll smile again Cause so many die, And so many go my name People push right past me, shouting their exclaims. A the preacher pushes me aside, I to wash my sins. I said no, la la. If he made me in his image, he's a, a failure too. And I used to need a couple people keep my head down. Now I need a whole lot more to keep me. La la I gave up something And I gave it up for nothing And now I'm afraid And now Don't cry child Got so much more to live for Don't cry child Got something I would die for, and if it comes to the rain, just be glad you'll smile again. So many girls, so many girls.